You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. Well, shortly after I became a Christian, I remember one day I was driving home in my, uh, I think it was a 1990 CRX. I don't know if you guys remember those cool little hatchbacks. I felt cool in it anyway. And I'm driving home and there's, I'm listening to a radio program on some Christian radio station. And there's a guest on this show who is teaching about the end times. And I never really thought much about that subject. And so I was really interested so much so that when I got home, I pulled in my driveway and this program was going and I literally sat in my car for, I don't know, maybe 20 or 30 minutes in my driveway because we didn't have internet. We just like had to hear it there on the radio. He was, he was connecting like modern day world events to images in the book of Revelation. Uh, he was very confident that the return of Jesus was coming soon, like in our lifetime. And he had predictions and details around that And as a young Christian, I was completely riveted. I thought, man, I've got to like rethink my whole life. For one thing, I don't need to worry about that final I've got coming up next week. That's really what I was thinking. I was like, why study? He's coming back. And that's kind of the nature of false teaching or really just any kind of confusion in general. It's disorienting. It puts you out of step with reality. And this is kind of the situation in Thessalonica. Like me, sitting in my car, listening to the radio, the Christians in Thessalonica had heard a teaching about the end times, about the return of Christ. And it rattled them. Paul had been with them. He had planted this church. He had taught them at length about the return of Christ. We know that from various cues in this letter and in this chapter in particular. But then he had left them. And his absence left room for other teachers to come in, other messages to come in. It left room for them to have their own misinterpretations and questions about what Paul was teaching. And that's exactly what happened. In some cases, people just opposed Paul's teaching. In other cases, and I think what may be happening here is Paul, Paul had taught them and people had misinterpreted it. And so now they're passing along this like slightly wrong teaching as what Paul said. And the whole thing just became incredibly confusing. On one hand, it stirred up a lot of anxiety and fear. On the other end of the spectrum, it stirred up, you know, kind of a disengagement with earthly responsibilities, like skipping the final and that sort of thing. And that's, that's a real issue in these letters. And so Paul hears about this, all this confusion, and he pens these two letters, maybe more than this, but at least these two, to do a couple things. He wants to correct. He wants to clarify what's true. But overall, he has a very pastoral aim. He wants to offer comfort to frightened young Christians who, who don't know what to make of end times events and who are somewhat insecure, unsure about their own salvation. And you see this emphasis at the end of the chapter. And so look down to verse 16. This is Paul's prayer after he goes through all the stuff we're going to look at. I just want you to see his heart here. He prays, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. May this one, may he comfort your hearts 
and establish them in every good work and word. That's the aim. He wants to comfort them. Now, listen, we're going to deal with their situation, the questions around the return of Christ and that kind of thing and how Paul offers them comfort. But just by way of application, what I want you to have in your mind is that what Paul offers them in their situation is available today for us in whatever situation we're in. Whatever kind of event has come into this world or into your life that has got you agitated and off kilter, God is ready to meet you there and comfort you. And so how does God comfort our hearts? He gives us three things in this passage. He comforts us with his truth, with his power, and with his love. First, you're going to see Paul gives them truth, the truth of God to comfort them. Look at verse 1. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, so right out of the gate, you get the topic, he's getting right to it. This is what we ask of you brothers, that you not be too quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. And so the return of Christ has always been an interesting and confusing topic in the church, and it's no different here. They had heard a teaching about the end times, and it sent them down like a rabbit hole, like a YouTube rabbit hole of speculation and emotional unrest. And the false teaching, he says here, is to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. Now, this could be read a few different ways. It could be read like, the day of the Lord has already happened and you missed it. You have been left behind. Oh, you remember that, okay. Uh, then picture Kirk Cameron saying it. You've been left behind, right? And that, that would obviously be unsettling, wouldn't it? That you've missed it, that you've been left out somehow. This could be read as people proclaiming that the day of the Lord has occurred in some kind of invisible spiritual sense, like symbolically. And there are religious movements today that believe that, and that's just not in sync with Paul's teaching, so that's confusing. Another possibility, and I think the more likely one, is that it means that the day of the Lord is upon us. The events surrounding the return of Christ have been set in motion, like this is going down now, y'all. That's the false teaching, I think. And just the intensity of that would stir up all kinds of emotions, wouldn't it? Fear, anxiety, uncertainty, disengagement. Whatever the teaching was, the underlying problem was is that they were too easily, too quickly moved off what Paul had already taught them about these things. Paul's appeal to them in verse two is that they not be so quickly shaken in mind. And so here he's talking about their intellect, their understanding of the issue. Shaken is an image that has to do with like waves and wind and a storm, right? So this, this new church was like a ship setting on sea. Paul had set them on a straight course with his teaching. And then along came this storm of false teaching and has knocked them off course. And it wasn't hard to do. It wasn't even that big of a storm. Knocked them off course. The result of being thrown off course was, he says, they are alarmed. And this is more of an emotional word. It means to be troubled or frightened. 
And then the correction begins in verse three. Guys, let no one deceive you in any way. The root problem underneath how they're feeling and what they're believing is that they've been deceived. They believed a lie. When you believe a lie, when something false becomes true to you, it throws you off course. It it renders you utterly helpless and confused. You begin to think and do irrational things. And this whole image to me just constantly takes me back to Genesis 3 because this is where humanity got off course in the first place. And all of the same elements are there. Like the deception story just keeps getting told over and over and over and over again in just slightly different ways. But all the elements are there. In Genesis 3, there's a false teacher bringing a false teaching to God's people. And they are deceived by it. And they're thrown into confusion. And they begin to do and think irrational things. And they're exiled. See, the story of redemption is God constantly coming to us, reminding us of what's true about him, about who he is and what he can do. And Paul's doing something very similar to that. Again, he's reminding them of what he's already taught them about this, taking them back to the truth of God's word. So here's the clarification he brings. Basically, he says, hey guys, the day of the Lord hasn't come yet. And the reason we know that is because there are two things that have to happen before that happens. Look at verse four. For that day will not come unless, first, the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. And so let's talk about these things for a little bit. First, the rebellion will come. Paul is talking about an ultimate and final rebellion that is identifiable. It's global and it's catastrophic. And he's picking up on or he's using the the language and the teaching of Jesus in Matthew 24. All of the key terms are the same if you look at it. And so in Matthew 24, Jesus says there's going to be a great rebellion and he describes it in two ways. Externally, Christians will be hated in every nation. Like globally, all over the world, Christians will be hated and persecuted. And internally, love inside the church will grow cold. So external hatred, coldness inside the church. These things have been a part of our story since Genesis 3, but what Jesus and Paul are saying is that they're going to escalate. There'll be an intensifying and a culmination of these things in a great rebellion that is unmistakable. It'll be identifiable. That's how Paul can say that it hasn't come yet. Second, That day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and then second, the man of lawlessness is revealed. That's why you're all here today. What do we know about this man of lawlessness? Not very much. Verse four tells us that he will oppose God and proclaim himself to be God. And there have been so many political and religious figures throughout history that have done that. And they are kind of types or forerunners of this man of lawlessness. We'll come back to that. Verse nine says that the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. Okay, so he's not Satan, but he is backed by Satan. 
He's animated by Satan. He, he has, or he will have power to perform signs and wonders, which is part of what will make his deception so effective. Verse nine says his deception will be for those who are perishing. And then the next few verses explain what that means. So we're gonna just dig into some of the details here. Those who are perishing are those who verse 10 describes as those who refused to love the truth and so be saved. And this is just such a fascinating comment because the mistake isn't intellectual like we tend to think it is. The mistake here is volitional. They refuse to make room for the truth in their lives. They want nothing with it. Verse 12 tells us that they don't want to believe the truth because they have pleasure in unrighteousness. Behind the smokescreen of intellectual doubt is a heart that cherishes pleasure in sin. That's how wicked it is. Verse 11, therefore, because of this refusal, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. This is, this is very reminiscent of the pattern that Paul lays out in Romans 1. There you have people who have exchanged the truth of God for a lie and so worshiped the creation rather than the creator. He says they did not see fit to acknowledge God. They didn't make any room in their life for God or for the truth of God. And therefore, God gave them over to a debased mind so that they may do what ought not to be done. Now, listen, some, some people will say, this isn't fair. God should not send them a strong delusion so that they believe what is false. But look what Paul's saying, especially in Romans 1, they've already rejected. They've refused to make room for him. They want nothing to do with God. They don't even see fit to acknowledge him. And so for God to give them over to what they really want, which is what they really treasure in their hearts, is, is really like phase one of judgment. This is the beginning of the judgment of God. Phase two is condemnation. Verse 12 says, he does this in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure and unrighteousness. And so we've been talking a lot in these letters about the day of judgment. I think what Paul wants us to see here is that there is a kind of judgment that is already in motion in this world. People who want nothing to do with God are in a like downward spiral that leads to more deceit and destruction. Now listen, it's not the final judgment. And so if you feel like, well, I'm, I'm in this downward spiral of confusion and maybe I have maybe pleasure in unrighteousness. If you're feeling that, I'm not saying, and God's not saying, well, then you're condemned. You should not hear it that way. This is not the final judgment. You should hear this as a warning and an invitation to repent and to believe. If you're in a downward spiral, God can rescue you. Psalm 103 says, this is what God does and can do forgives all our iniquity, heals all our diseases, redeems our life from the pit, and crowns us with steadfast love and mercy. 
Isn't that awesome? He satisfies us with good things. He renews our heart, our youth, like the eagles. In in other words, what has been lost can now be found. This is the good news of the gospel. What has been squandered can be restored. Whatever has been tarnished can be redeemed in Christ. All right, here's the clarity that Paul is trying to bring. They're confused about the day of the Lord, and he's just saying, like, look, don't be confused. Two things have to happen before that happens, the rebellion and the revealing of the lawless one. Now, I don't know, maybe some of you have been tied up in knots about these events. Um, Most of us are just interested in them, but they don't bother us, and so I would just ask you to consider what does bother you? I mean, what has happened in our world? What is happening in your life? What things have you been wrestling with in scripture that have just brought a sense of confusion and doubt and insecurity to your life? And where do you go to find comfort in that? We go to so many places for comfort in our confusion. And the application here is that we would come back over and over again to the truth of God's word. That's what he says in verse 15. Stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, which is the gospel. So the first thing Paul does to comfort them is he gives them the truth of God's word. The second thing he talks about is the power of God. This gives them confidence in their fear. And you may ask, well, what is there to fear? Well, these verses tell us that there's going to be a powerful force of evil let loose in the world. It's going to be a great rebellion, a great deception. There's going to be this figure who has incredible satanic influence over the world. I mean, that's kind of concerning, right? There's going to be a great battle, and Paul wants them and us to, to see that God wins. He wants us to have confidence in God's power. Look what he says in verse eight. The lawless one will be revealed, signs, wonders, power, all of that. But the Lord Jesus will kill him with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Uh, I wish we had time for this. These images are taken from Isaiah and Daniel, and they just meant to convey the ease with which Jesus defeats the lawless one. It's like no big deal. Just his appearing brings total ruin and destruction to this person. It's lightweight. It's not hard for him. He's Jesus. Now, that's in the future. Paul tells us something about the present here, too, though, that I, that I think we need to see. Verse 7. He says that the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. The man of lawlessness will come later. He will be revealed. But right now, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work in the world. Well, what is this mystery of lawlessness? John calls it the spirit of the Antichrist. Here, mystery just means hidden or subversive. And lawless just means like without law, not having law, anti-law. Paul uses this word lawless in other passages as like a synonym for sin and spiritual darkness. And so what we're talking about here is a, an unseen, 
subversive power of sin that is at work right now in the world. We can get a sense for it by looking at the man of lawlessness. You know, so what Paul says about the man of lawlessness teaches us something about the mystery of it, the nature of sin and lawlessness. His name itself says something, right? If lawless is anti-law, no law, then it clues us in that sin is not just disobeying the law of God. It is that, but it's not just that. It is also disregarding the law of God having nothing to do with it. Human rebellion at its height questions the very idea of law. Like, who's to say what's right or wrong? And that is a growing darkness in our day, isn't it? In our culture, truth originally originates internally, you know? I have my truth, you have your truth. None of it is eternally true, it's just what I feel right now. That's a dangerous kind of lawlessness. Tim Keller says, lawlessness says, my feelings are more real than any law outside of me. This is the spirit of our age. My feelings are more real than any other truth, more real than scripture, more real than what my community says, more real than science. Like it used to be that the conflict was between science and the Bible. Those days are gone. The conflict is now between the individual and any other source of truth. That is the mystery of lawlessness. Don't you ever think like, how did we get to such an irrational place? This, this is at work in our world. The actions of the lawless one tell us something about the nature of sin. Verse four, he opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Man, there are so many theories about is this a real or figurative temple and what does it mean for him to sit in it and proclaim himself to be God? Nobody knows. Lots of interesting thoughts. I think what we can know and learn here is just what it is telling us about the nature of sin in our world. And the nature of sin is that it is self-exalting. So much so that it wants to put self in the place of God. I call the shots. I run the show. I decide what's right and wrong. There is this subversive, powerful force in our world, in our lives, that's always pushing something to the center of our life and our church other than God. Anything other than God. Let's put politics at the center of the church and see how that goes. Oh, we've seen that. Put comfort at the center of your life and see how that goes. Put materialism at the center of your life. Put sex at the center of your life. Put identity at the center of your life. Something is always pushing for room at the center of our lives where God belongs. That's the nature of sin. That's the mystery of lawlessness that it's at work right now. In Romans 7, I love that Kelsey shared this um, because it's an illustration of it. Romans 7, Paul describes this as a war waging in his soul that the law of sin 
is waging war against his desires to do the law of God. So much so that Paul ends up doing what he doesn't want to do and he doesn't do the things that he does want to do. And at the end of it, he says like, who will rescue me from this? If the apostle Paul doesn't have enough power in himself to overcome the power of sin at work in our world, then look, I don't think we do either. And so what confidence do we have against this mysterious force of sin at work in our lives? Well, the same confidence we have in the last days. We have confidence in the power of God now. When Paul says, who will rescue me? A couple of verses later, he says, the law of the spirit of life has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The spirit has power. The spirit of God who lives in you is far more powerful than the law of sin waging war against you. He goes on to say, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. Okay, back up for a second. Just as the power of sin is already at work in the world, so too the power of God through his spirit is already at work in the world. And it's greater the power of sin. It's stronger than the desires of the flesh. Kelsey talked about feeling helpless. I think that's a good word. I think we should ask ourselves, man, where do we feel helpless? Some of you feel helpless against a particular temptation. I mean, it's to the point that you can't even imagine being free from it. You've sort of just given up. If you feel helpless in your struggle against sin, I cannot think of a, of a better way for you to move toward the healing power of God than joining recovery. I mean, you can bring it up in your GC. You can visit with a pastor. There's a, these are all good options, but I'm just telling you, recovery is designed for this specific thing. You should check it out. This week, twice, once in an elder meeting and once in a staff meeting, we were asked to share how our walk with God is going. And immediately I just thought of areas of my life where I feel helpless. Like things that are happening external to me that I can't fix or control. Like if you're raising kids, you know, you know that feeling. If you long for justice, you know that feeling. If you're trying to help someone who is going through a really difficult situation that you can't fix, you know that feeling of helplessness. And in my mind, I just want to fix that stuff so I can move on with life. But I've been reading through the Psalms lately and God has helped me just to slow down and not fix, but to pray and to lament and to bring others into the circle to pray. And look, those things in my life have not changed that I can see anyway. What has changed is I don't feel defeated by them. I actually feel a tremendous sense of confidence that God can change them. The power of God gives us comfort. Psalm 21 says, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, the powerful one. 
In their confusion, Paul gave them the truth. In their fear, Paul speaks about the power of God so that they can have confidence in him. The last thing is in their anxiety, Paul comforts them with the love of God. Look at verse 13. In contrast to those who are perishing, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by his spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So one scholar notes the obvious. Scholars get paid to note the obvious sometimes. He's like, you know, the day of judgment, that's unsettling, <laughs> really. So he just, he just notes that, look, the idea of the day of judgment for them would stir up some insecurity about their own salvation. It's a day of wrath. And so would they receive wrath or would they be saved from wrath? And Paul aims to comfort them in this. And what I want you to see, it's really important to notice. He doesn't comfort them by downplaying the judgment of God. He doesn't say like, you guys are gonna be fine, God understands. Or like, look, you're good people, you try to do what's right, you're kind, it's gonna be okay. He doesn't do that. Actually, if he had done that, that would only make them more anxious because it might offer some temporary relief, but in the end, it doesn't give them any sense of security about where they stand before God. If my standing before God is that I'm a good person and I try to do what's right, I'm, that's shaky ground. Look what he does. He comforts them with the good news of what God has done for them. We ought to give thanks for you, for you to God, brothers beloved by the Lord. He just tells them the most simple, like the kids down in PK are learning this truth today. God loves you. So basic. Can you think of anything more comforting though? The Lord loves you. The Lord, like he's the one who sits enthroned on high. He's the one who reigns in majesty and holiness. He's the one who will judge the earth in righteousness and his word over you will be final. If you stand before him and he says, depart from me, I never knew you, then you are condemned. But what if you stand before him and he says, ah, my beloved, If the Lord has set his love upon you, then you'll be saved and glorified in him. Sometimes when Debbie, my wife, says we need to talk, in my brain, the phrase we need to talk means you've messed up, always. And so when she says we need to talk, I immediately start just rolling through the Rolodex of things that I may have done wrong or thing, good things that I haven't done said or haven't said. I mean, I'm sure there's something. And so I'm pulling up all those scenarios. I never know. Like it's become a joke in our house that after 25 years of marriage, when Debbie says we need to talk, I literally never know what it is that we need to talk about. It's like a tornado warning. Okay, something important is happening. Do I run for shelter? What do I do here? I never know. Sometimes when we get to the conversation, it turns out Debbie just wants like to share something that's going on in her life. 
She wants me to help, help her plan something. Sometimes she just wants to like encourage me in something. I'm just like, wow. Like when that moment occurs that I realize this isn't about me and my failures, like, guys, you know this feeling. Like there's this rush of relief that just washes over you. And it totally changes everything. Like I am able to like, my mind shifts, I can focus, my body relaxes. My heart rejoices in this good news that it's not about me and my failures. This is real. When we come to God, we know. We know that we haven't lived up to his standards. It's not a question, we know it. We know it because we haven't, we haven't even lived up to our own standards. And so because we've not lived up, measured up, we think that that's what God wants to talk about every time. We think that coming before him is gonna be about that. And if you haven't come before God in a long time, that might be why, because you think that's what it's gonna be about. His disappointment in you. We assume that God sees us the way that we see ourselves, but Paul is saying that's not how God sees you. God sees us as his beloved children. He chose you to be saved, to be sanctified through your belief in the truth. He called you through the gospel so that you may obtain the glory of Christ. His whole purpose for you is to save and sanctify and glorify you. And the way he accomplishes that is through your belief in the truth, right? The truth is that you're saved by grace through faith, not as a result of works. That's not what he wants to talk about. If you're in Christ, this is what Jesus says about you. He says that the the love that the father has for the son is the same love that he has for you. The way he sees you is the same as the way he sees his son. That's what he wants to talk about. How much he loves you in Christ. How much comfort could you find if you would stop looking around the room, comparing yourself to how others seem to be doing, feeling insecure about where you are in your faith, and instead just looking to Jesus and relishing in his love for you? I want to end just by going back to Genesis 3 for a moment. When they rebelled against God, they were cast into a spiral of confusion. And what did God do? He came to them. He made clothes for them because they they realized they were naked. They were covered in shame. He covered them in clothes. And that whole scene, it points us to a number of things, but particularly to judgment and salvation. Because the clothes were made of animal skins. There was a death. There was a sacrifice. Judgment against sin is death. And salvation from judgment will involve a sacrificial death. That's what we remember when we come to take the communion meal, that Jesus gave up his life for us. The deep question of the human soul is, will God gather us in from our exile? And the answer in 2 Thessalonians 2 is yes. Yes and yes. Yes, because this is the promise of the gospel. Yes, because God can and will do it by the power of his might. Yes, because he will save us because he set his love upon us. 
The good news of 2 Thessalonians is that God is on his throne and we are in his hands. What comfort we have in Christ today. Let's thank him. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.